I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Inez Stepman in for Rachel Bogard. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, today we've got four totally distinct topics, which is kind of interesting for this show. We're going to start out with Josh talking about the politics of mass inflation that we're all suffering under. I'll talk a little bit about the latest developments in the John Durham probe. Emily will talk a little bit about the myth of so-called replacement theory. And last but not least, Inez will touch on the Biden administration's pending, it seems, effort to redefine sex for schools and sports. So with that, I'll turn it over to Josh to talk inflation. Okay, so not exactly the sexiest topic to get us started on, but it is obviously a deeply important one. If you believe public opinion polling, Pew Gallup, or whoever else is polling it, uh, the economy in general is the number one issue for voters. This fall, it kind of takes you back, obviously, to Jimmy Carville saying it's the economy stupid back in 1992. And, you know, when we have the highest inflation now since Reagan and Paul Volcker as Fed chair in the early 80s broke stagflation, I mean, we are currently facing 40-year, four-decade highs, it's hard to ignore that. So, I mean, from my perspective, I think inflation is going to be the number one issue for voters this fall. Um, certainly, given the fact that Democrats obviously control Congress and the White House, that should militate in favor of Republicans, if for nothing else. But I think it's just worth kind of digging digging in just a little deeper here. I mean, look, just on a personal level, I mean, I filled up my car at the pump here in Miami last Friday. I, I had to do like a double take. I mean, I'm sure the four of us have all had similar reactions there. I was like, is this the is this the price of gas or is this my zip code or phone number or something? I mean, it was just galling stuff. And literally last week, um, the very same week that gas reached four decades high, and as of this week, literally all 50 states in the United States have average gas the pump averaging over $4 a gallon for the first time in, in US history, if I'm not mistaken. Literally last week, though, when it reached 40 years, 40 years high, it was the very same lease. The Biden administration canceled offshore oil and natural gas leases in both uh, Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico. Very hard, I think, to kind of look at this. By the way, at the same time, um, allegedly to try to ameliorate Americans' concerns at the pump, now I guess uh, the Biden administration is talking a little bit with Maduro down in Venezuela about kind of getting more Venezuelan oil. They have even gone so far as to suggest that maybe we should start importing Iranian oil. Um, I, I, while, while at the same time, they are simultaneously refusing to obviously do anything on the domestic front. So look, I, as is so common for this administration, it seems like up is down, down is up, left is right, and so forth here. But as far as kind of getting into what inflation is, I mean, I feel like for many, many years, you know, conservatives, people on the right in general, a lot of libertarians, obviously, certainly as well, kind of the old school kind of Ron, Ron Paul Goldbug type, basically were warning that inflation was coming. And I think for a solid 15 years, they were largely proven wrong. But it is unambiguously here, to kind of go back to economics 101, right? the, def the classical definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. The too much money aspect, the too much money half of that kind of succinct definition is a monetary, monetary policy issue, which obviously falls under the jurisdiction of the Federal Reserve, which is nominally independent. But at a bare minimum, it seems like the President of the United States should be kind of publicly encouraging within the bounds of reason, the Fed chairman to kind of hike interest rates a little more precipitously. So one thing possibly this fall the Republicans could talk about is maybe kind of 
reining in the Federal Reserve's nominal independence or kind of a exercising greater oversight over the Fed. That, that's kind of a traditional conservative sweet spot. The part that I'm a little more interested in, though, is the too few goods part. And this baby formula shortage has kind of shined a spotlight on this, of course, which is just horrific, obviously, the fact that we're having to deal with this. I think just this morning, we're recording this on Wednesday, I saw a headline that Nestle, which is the parent company of Gerber, the baby food company, is going to start literally flying in mass baby food from Switzerland. Now, the, the Biden administration is kind of sort of easing up on some of its own self-inflicted wounds as far as kind of the import quotas on that. So um, focusing on the production aspect of kind of the too much money chasing too few goods, I think kind of from kind of a NATCOM perspective, I think the way that that kind of militates is in favor of maybe some stronger industrial policy kind of measures, right? In terms of kind of a pro-production, kind of like more some, some more kind of Orin Cassie kind of uh, build up the manufacturing base, build up the industrial supply lines kind of policies. So I guess from my perspective, I would like to see that talking point as well, kind of uh, get more on the stump as far as we head towards November, kind of more discussion of, of invoking the Defense Production Act, which I saw Senator Josh Hawley and Senator Marco Rubio talk about with respect to at least baby formula. No reason that can't just be kind of a more general kind of fiscal, uh, a, a fiscal side equation to kind of solving this inflation crisis. But I, I guess I'd be kind of curious for like the way that you guys see this playing out this fall. Again, it's not the sexiest topic in the world, admittedly, but like this is a debilitating issue right now. And like it, it, is, it is hitting every single American hard. It is famously regressive insofar as it hits kind of working class people the hardest. So how do you guys see it shaping up this fall as far as inflation is concerned in particular? I'm excited to jump in on this question because the uh, Democrats have spent the entire day, the media spent the entire day, and even establishment Republicans have spent the entire day um, fretting over uh, Mastriano in Pennsylvania, um, and or or even uh, cheering on Fetterman in Pennsylvania. Um, Republicans have a huge upper hand, even with candidates the establishment doesn't particularly like, specifically because Democrats are going to have to run on the Biden agenda. They're going to have to run on the green agenda um, that is exacerbating inflation. They're also going to have to run on the, the big government policies that exacerbated inflation. In inflation. And in a swing state like Pennsylvania, that doesn't play well for Democrats. They're going to have to answer for a huge spending um, on just programs and on the environment. They're going to have to answer for bad, bad, bad policies um, like canceling Keystone. Um, so this stuff is, is not going to play well for Democrats. And even in the sense that the political establishment thinks that um, some of these more MAGA candidates are going to be bad on the ballot, um, they are coming in, Democrats are, are not coming in with the upper hand, because as we know, when when people go um, in terrible economies like this one, for so many people, maybe not for the upper upper, uh, but for so many people, when they're going to vote, um, their mood is going to be severely impacted by uh, this, this Biden economy. And, and when Democrats are going to be forced to answer for um, their policies that have exacerbated inflation pretty obviously, in a state like Pennsylvania, good luck. Um, so I, I just wanted to to register that skepticism um, on as we're taping this on on Wednesday. Sure, I mean I, I agree with you, Emily. I think it's not the economy stupid until it is the economy, and the economy is stupid. Um, but really, <laughs> what what we're um, what we're facing here, I think the baby formula shortage is actually 
extremely worrying, not because of the immediate, although those, those impacts are, are really stressing out a lot of moms. And like, I, I definitely think, for example, there are probably more moms stressed out about baby formula shortage than there are um, people really, really concerned about Roe v. Wade, right? Um, so I, I, uh, I definitely don't want to downplay the immediate impact of this formula shortage, but I'm, I haven't really seen a really good explanation for why it's happening, which is really, really worrying to me because it's not traceable. So yes, there was this one manufacturing plant that, that um, had a major recall, had to be shut down for some time. Um, but what I'm hearing actually from our true, uh, our tr the true best commentators uh, who are tw Twitter and anon, you know, eggs um, from folks in different fields is that actually every, almost every field of manufacturing in the United States is struggling to find the products they need uh, to, to build their ultimate product. And what they're doing is engaging in, in a whole lot of like really creative sort of substitution. Um, so if you need, you know, sort of element X, you're going to go get something and you, you can't get it because there are so many shortages going on in, in like globally right now um, in the supply chains that you're replacing it, you know, element X with element, you know, X tag one, right? Something that's sort of similar. And the reason we're seeing it in baby formula first is because the, that recipe is so tightly controlled by the FDA, they can't substitute almost anything. So we're seeing it first in baby formula, but we are going to see it in a whole lot of things. And um, ultimately, this is, this is uh, you know, a reminder that you can't just shut down the economy um, for, for well over a year and expect that those, those effects are going to dissipate over time. Americans are not used to, to shortages and inflation uh, and not being able to, I mean, the responses from some Democrats, especially um, around prices, for example, in the grocery store have been so contemptuous. They have just been like, well, you shouldn't be eating that much meat anyway, right? Um, I, I really think that's going to be, as Emily said, a huge loser for them in, in the elections. When you're telling Americans, middle-class Americans, that it is a luxury for them to buy, you know, let's say a whole chicken, um, you know, I never, I never expected a chicken in every pot, you know, the slogan from the 30s to come back and sound relevant. Um, and, and I think that that is absolutely going to play very, very hard against Democrats in, in November. Yeah, I mean, this administration's message has basically been let them buy Teslas and criticizing people for hoarding baby formula. They've also blamed inflation on price gouging oil companies. Pretty much they point the finger everywhere except at themselves. And the reality, of course, is there was massive money printing at the Federal Reserve over the last two years. All you have to do is just look at a chart of the money supply, and it's basically a straight line up. So what did you think was going to happen? Combined with, as noted by Inez, the fact that we shut everything down, as did many other nations around the world, which has basically broken supply chains, uh, unnecessarily so. We also did not have the domestic manufacturing capacity to be able to withstand those slowdowns, and then you add on the administrative state chicanery at the FDA, and you add it up, and this is basically ruling class failure after ruling class failure. Mass spending, mass money printing, cutting off our nose to spite our face with respect to our Chinese coronavirus response. Uh, of course, born in part from the close relations, the integration and engagement we've had with communist China. So in almost every single respect, it's self-inflicted wounds. Um, I, it, it is kind of remarkable to see inflation being the number one issue. It'll also be interesting to see where Americans place the blame for it. But to Josh's point, it's on both sides of the equation where it's a problem. It's on both the monetary policy side 
It's on the fiscal side, and then it's on the supply side of actually opening up the economy. And of course, every inclination of this administration is to choke off at whole sectors of the economy with a obviously suicidal uh, energy policy, if you can even call it that, and beyond. And of course, the energy prices end up being baked into the prices of every single good and service effectively that we use. So it's a disaster all around, and it's unimaginable that they're going to raise interest rates to 10% or 15% like we did in the 80s, I think, right now. So I think really the Democrats are caught between a rock and a hard place. And it also is not going to be that easy for Republican administration necessarily to just flip a switch and turn the American economy back on. But all worth watching. And the blame ought to be placed where it should lie, which is with uh, our betters in the ruling class. All right. So with that, I'm going to transition now to the John Durham special counsel. And this week, the trial began in the case against former Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer, Michael Sussman, who's been charged with essentially misrepresenting himself, lying to the FBI when he went to the then top lawyer at the FBI to dish Trump Russia dirt, which was obviously false, and claimed both in a text message and then according to notes in the conversation, according to the witness account in the conversation, but the fact that he was not representing any party when he brought this Trump Russia dirt, when in fact, of course, he was representing the campaign, also working for Rodney Jaffe, one of these tech people who is involved in collecting the dirt and trying to make this case against Trump. So this is a huge trial. And without even going into the developments of it, I, I want to point out the kind of higher level points that are remarkable in terms of this case. So we've seen now that of this 12 jury panel, at least three of the jurors contributed to Hillary Clinton's campaign. One juror reportedly contributed to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign. So let's be clear, three of the 12 contrib contributed to the campaign who Sussman, the suspect here, the indicted person here, the defendant himself represented in 2016. So that's point one that's remarkable. Point number two that's remarkable, the judge in this case in DC, Christopher Cooper, he's a former colleague of Sussman at DOJ. Cooper is an Obama appointed judge to this court but Cooper in the 90s worked at DOJ when Sussman was there, and he actually put up early on in the case uh, for a potential recusal, the fact that he was an acquaintance. In fact, the word he used was that they were professional acquaintances, although they were not friends, according to him, professional acquaintances. Judge Cooper's wife, Amy Jeffress, who also worked at DOJ and was a deputy to Eric Holder at one point, has represented Lisa Page, the disgraced Lisa Page, since at least 2018. So you have the jurors, you have the judge, and then you have Sussman, all of whom seem to be, to some extent, aligned that it only takes one of those jurors for this case to end up in a hung jury, of course. Uh, now add on to the government's argument in opening remarks here. And this was not focused on enough, but I think is quite telling. So one of the prosecutors who was delivering the opening address, Deborah Shaw, and this is according to a tweet from the New York Times of Charlie Savage, who's been one of the key Russiagate reporters, by the way. He was live tweeting from the court, and he, his tweet said this, Shaw addresses, quote, the elephant in the room, tells jury their feelings about Russia, Trump, Clinton can't play a role in the case. This is about, and I believe this is a direct quote here, our FBI, which should not be used as a tool by anyone, Republicans or Democrats. That is a huge admission by the Durham team here. Our FBI, which should not be used as a tool by anyone. That means that Durham is placing the blame for the origins of Russiagate or one of the origins of Russiagate on 
the Hillary Clinton campaign and this entire conspiracy, which Durham has laid out. But he is not holding clearly then by this statement, the FBI and DOJ officials and others within the national security apparatus culpable. He's basically saying they were duped or there was an attempt to dupe them. That is a remarkable admission in my view. It's amazing that it appears now, you know, based on the two indictments that we've seen, which are Denchenko, another person who was responsible for creating the Steele dossier, and Sussman, the Clinton campaign lawyer. Yes, Mark Elias, Democrat super lawyer, is going to testify, I believe, in this case. But nevertheless, if the government is off the hook here, that is a massive scandal and a massive failure, in my view, of the Durham special counsel. I don't think this has been focused on enough. And this shows you just how deep and pervasive the swamp is, from the jury to the judge, and then even to the prosecutor here in this case. And we're talking about maybe justice for one or two people here with the greatest scandal, arguably, in American political history. I think that's remarkable. I'm curious to know if you guys see it in the terms that I do, which are disastrous terms, quite frankly. Yeah, look, I mean, the short answer, I think, is yes. I mean, Lee Smith had an entire book. I, I, I'm just trying to get to the bottom of, of, of the depths of hell that this entire affair has just put onto the American public. And obviously, the fact that we don't have really any kind of sense of closure, the fact that we don't have any kind of sense of closure is, to me, the most troubling part. Um, it's kind of similar, actually, to how I view, you know, I, I saw the Dinesh D'Souza's new film, uh, 2000 Mules, recently in Mar-a-Lago for the debut. It's kind of actually similar how, to how I feel about the voter fraud in 2020, is that, it, that there are no receipts to show for this yet. There's, there is simply no sense of closure whatsoever for either of these incidents. And, you know, in, in basic human affairs, I mean, like humans, beings, when they have a terrible thing happen to them, want a sense of closure. So one thing that I, I you know, that I've been saying, for months now, if Republicans take over Congress this fall, let alone if they do so at the magnitude that it looks like they might, because as of now, it looks like they potentially, obviously, if current trend lines hold, could take over with the largest majorities they've had since the Calvin Coolidge administration. I mean, if we get any, if Republicans can get anywhere close to that, you know, I think mass subpoenas on day one of trying to hold these people before Congress to do something has to be very, very, very much at the top of the list there. So, I, you know, I, I, I don't think you're exaggerating to answer your question. I think that, that, that this truly is scandal, scandal of stuff. And, and it's just really just awful that this continues to drag on. And, you know, supporters of the former president of the United States have no sense of closure whatsoever for this horrific, horrific set of affairs that was launched onto them back in 2016. It's a long time ago at this point, 2016. I mean, it's really just dragged on just such a long time by now. Yeah. Well, and by the way, we have another election coming up. And as I'll just, I'll just super quickly, we have Go another first. election coming up and we have no indication um, that there are safeguards in place, um, even like the public pressure, the safeguard of, of not sort of being on the wrong side of the public's uh, opinion. We have no indication that the FBI has been responsive to any of that or that new safeguards are, are going to prevent FBI, the FBI putting its thumb on the scale going forward. Um, and I just have heard, you know, it's it's like nobody. Yes, Republicans have talked about this. It's a very convoluted thing to get to the bottom to, like you said, Josh Lee Smith wrote a whole book about it. Um, and then Amanda did a whole movie on it. Um, it's it's just like, it, it's completely convoluted. It's hard to explain to voters. Um, and in this insane time, it's hard to like find ways to focus on appropriately because the the state is so deep, um, as as you might be able to say, that it's, it's really hard to uh, wrangle. And I don't have any confidence that um, the safeguards 
necessary safeguards are in place to prevent this from happening as we gear up for another election. You know, it strikes me that one of the sort of themes of all, all of the problems that we seem to be facing as a country has been um, these, our system is supposed to be set up, first of all, with a certain amount of, of democratic accountability. Um, and, and but second of all, splitting, you know, sort of, uh, you know, splitting uh, power against power, like holding it's the entire idea of checks and balances and so on. Um, it seems like it's also the, the underlying of the market, right? The, the idea that everyone's going to pursue their interests sort of independently, and that therefore, if we set up a system in in uh, the way that we have, we will be able to have ambition counteract ambition, right? And what has happened is that there has developed a, a you know professional managerial class that has largely such similar beliefs and worldview. Ben, you, you mentioned the word, you know, uh, duping, right? Like, like, and they're trying to say that the, the deep state was essentially duped by somebody um, from the Clinton campaign and all of this. It, it strikes me that even if that were true, which there's plenty of evidence that it isn't, but even if that surface level, um, sort of scratching the surface of this scandal were true, they were primed to be duped because they all believe the same things. Right. They were all the reason at the end of the day, I suspect that this has less to do with like evil, nefarious people pulling strings and more to do with the fact that literally everybody, 95 plus percent of people who are in these professional managerial type jobs and went through the same law schools, the same undergraduate education, the same K-12 education. They interact with people in the same class. They largely don't interact with out of it. Um, and all of those folks had the same view that Donald Trump, that everything that was levied against Donald Trump was plausible because they didn't like Donald Trump and they saw him as a threat to what they have confused for liberal democracy, but is really just a set of in-bubble platitudes about the world um, or assumptions about the world that are not shared by the majority of Americans. And so what's happened, even if they're quote unquote duped, right? If they're, they're primed to be duped because they all have the same background assumptions and those assumptions were all going against Donald Trump to the extent that you could, you could you know, plant a ridiculous story like this and have it be taken seriously by the security apparatus, um, by, by the administrative state in a way that it wouldn't have been taken seriously if, if the, you know, if Team R had tried to, to um, you know, put in uh, some kind of, of investigation based on a campaign, you know, a campaign um, like sort of theory, right? So um, I think that's the deeper problem here. And it's not going to be solved by, um, it's not really going to be solved by these hearings, although I'm in favor of those hearings. And obviously Democrats have set a very, very broad precedent in terms of subpoenas and the power um, of these investigations based around the January 6th commission. Um, and I think Republicans should use that power, but really it's much more difficult than finding the one or two or three or four or 10 bad actors. Um, it, it ne we need to actually change the structure of the bureaucracy of the deep state. Um, and we need to make it more democratically accountable. Well, another one of the deep state's theories is that uh, there's a pervasive belief in uh, the replacement theory and that that is inciting the greatest, most lethal threat to the homeland in white supremacy. So with that, I'll turn it over to Emily to uh, open our eyes to that that narrative. Yes. So actually, I saw a great column from my old editor, Tim Carney, excerpted by Inez, of, of all people, in this morning's Bright. Um, 
Tim wrote, a madman who describes himself as, quote, an ethno-nationalist, eco-fascist, national socialist, went on a racist shooting spree in Buffalo over the weekend. He cited radical views and conspiracies he absorbed from the internet to explain his turn to mass murder. Okay, so as Tim continues, why are so many in the legacy media and the Democratic Party intent on watering down the insane things the shooter believed? The most likely answer is that the media want to blur any distinction between the shooter's evil and insane views on one hand versus the typical Republican views that the media and Democrats dislike on the other. Okay, so he's, he's obviously referring to what happened in Buffalo, the tragedy that unfolded at the, the grocery store in Buffalo um, in recent days, and this push in the media to uh, pin the blame on the shooting on people like Tucker Carlson, who have discussed the, the so-called great replacement theory um, on their airwaves um, or in the pages of their uh, publications. And this idea is that the great replacement theory, as the media would say, is a white nationalist conspiracy that um, is, is only espoused in the cause of white nationalism and believes that there is a conspiracy being uh, brewed up by globalist Democrats to replace white voters with uh, minority voters in order to advance the Democratic Party. So what we should discuss here is the very obvious reality that uh, Democrats themselves are um, see the replacement of white voters due to immigration and, and sort of natural immigration patterns in this country as a ticket to long-term viability and success and power as a party. And they have talked about this, especially when it comes to states like Texas and Arizona and the country as a whole, California, for years and years and years and years. I just pulled up an NPR article um, from 2011. This is just an example. You can find all you can find all kinds of this, um, all kinds of this stuff if you just nowhere to look. Um, the way the immigration debate has played out in recent years certainly seems to be to the advantage of Democrats in the competition for Hispanic voters. I mean, it's just um, this, this whole article is about how um, Democrats are largely going to be helped by shifts in the population. And the Democratic Party on a national level obviously pays attention to this and knows this and incorporates it as, as any political party would into their strategy in places like Texas and Arizona. In fact, Republicans in the infamous 2012 autopsy made a similar argument. This is just, but the, the, the sort of reflexive treatment of the media that this is necessarily the intellectual formulation of white nationalists um, and conspiracy theorists has been, I don't think we should take for granted exactly how gross it is and how divisive it is and how like plainly um, offensive it is to, to people um, around the country who see what's happening and say, like, this is like nakedly part of the Democrat strategy. It's not a conspiracy. It is not necessarily racist. Are there racists who talk about it a whole lot? Yeah, absolutely. But that doesn't invalidate the reality. Sorry, I just choked on my, my tongue there. <laughs> but it doesn't invalidate the reality um, that 
<laughs> sorry, the reality that um, this is a real thing that's actually happening and you can assign it to white nationalists or conspiracy theorists, but it's it's actually a thing. Um, and this gets into, you know, who we blame when these shootings happen. Um, and we can talk about that. We can discuss that, certainly. Um, but let me get your guys' thoughts on this push in recent days from the media to to blame white nationalists and Tucker Carlson for what happened in Buffalo. I mean, obviously, they want it both ways, right? They, they want to say that, um, you know, the, the demography is destiny conversation that has been happening for a decade or more uh, on the left is legitimate. And they want to say that Republican pushback um, is or, or conservative pushback is illegitimate and, and, nat- and uh, by its nature tied to extremism, racism, whatever else. Um, and obviously, the reason that they want to do this, the end goal of this is, of course, censorship, right? It, it, it always is that the, the, they imagine and, and I guess the second goal would be self-flattery, right? Because um, we've had this successive sort of series of excuses for why the, the national media has failed to understand um, or to predict some of the forces, fundamental political forces in the country. And um, first it was Russiagate, right? Russia, you know, Russia swung our 2016 election. Then it was, you know, the majority of Americans are racist, you know, millions and millions and millions of Americans are actually like really vicious racists, which is something after this, um, there, there was a CNN contributor who said uh, that, that this is just America, this shooting in Buffalo, this is just the essence of America. Um, and, and the reality is that, that folks like Tucker, for example, are popular because they're saying things um, that people actually do notice in their own lives. Um, now, Ironically, the demography is destiny slash great replacement theory, whichever you know uh, side of that coin you want to uh, call it, has has taken some heavy blows recently, right? It, it turns out that demography isn't destiny, and that um, you know different political issues come up that split demographic groups uh, in in different ways, um, and and that these things are not written in sort of identity politics stone. Um, but yeah, it, it's obviously an illegitimate attempt to shut out. Uh, the response to a conversation that Emily, as you say, the left has been saying openly for a decade, but it's now, you know, now you're in league with a, a mass shooter. If, if you notice that the left has been saying openly for 10 years um, that, that they want to change the politics uh, of the country by changing the demography. Yeah. So look, I mean, they really don't hide this. I mean, I, I'm watching, or we're recording this, I should say on Wednesday, May 18th, Tucker devoted his opening monologue last night. He spent the first like 15, 20 minutes of his show. He had the receipts. I mean, going back to, to us clearing a call as the New York Times editorial board itself, which, you know, obviously is like the unofficial spokesman for kind of the, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, basically making this exact argument. I mean, how often have we heard the terminology of a, of a coalition of the ascendant, demographics or destiny? I mean, Roy Teixeira, going back in, in, in 2004, wrote a whole book basically arguing this. Now, he subsequently claimed that kind of identity politics activists kind of hijacked and bastardized his thesis, but his book in 2004 is entitled The Emerging Democratic Majority, kind of saying it pretty plainly right there. And he argued there that Democrats should, quote, exploit economic and demographic changes, exploit economic and demographic changes, including the growth of minority communities and cultural shifts among college graduates. I, I mean, I'm not sure how, how much more plainly 
that this could possibly be communicated. Now, having said that, I, I do think it's important to distinguish what I refer to as kind of the strong form of great replacement theory and the weak form. The weak form is what we just said. They are openly saying this. They argued for years and years that kind of importing, you know, a more kind of multiracial, multi-ethnic coalition to kind of uh, drown out the white native majority would electorally benefit them. They argue that for years, as Inez says, by the way, it's not really happening that easily as I see every day here living down in Florida. But the other, the strong form of the theory should be condemned. The strong form of the theory is like elders of the protocol of, of Zion level conspiracy theory that like, you know, shadowy Jews are kind of orchestrating this whole thing. That's kind of going back to the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville where they said like Jews will not replace us. That's where they're getting this from. So that's obviously and transparently disgusting and anti-Semitic and horrible. But like the weaker form of the theory, um, they literally say it. <laughs> I mean, like we have the receipts to show and we've had the receipts for 15, 20 years now. Yeah, they they conflate the two, obviously, purposefully. So, and you know, we should we should state at the outset that before the bodies were even cold, they wanted to rush to judgment here, which is basically saying that they're fine using deaths as political props to propagate a narrative that they believe will delegitimize and undermine their opposition and justify a whole slew of tyrannical acts with our national security apparatus. That's the reality of the situation here. And really what they're saying is, if you point out the truth, not just the truth, but what we ourselves have articulated and admitted for years, then you're a bigot. You're a bigot for calling out the truth. Just like the attack on mal, mis, dis, and malinformation is really about not pointing out inconvenient truths on a whole slew of issues that undermine their regime. That's the reality of the situation. They don't want people to speak openly and honestly and truthfully about what their agenda is, even when it's a conspiracy effectively right out in the open, the best kind of conspiracy, because they don't want to deal with the criticism and actually have to grapple on the merits. So this is a shameful and disgusting episode of the kind that we have come to expect. And really, it's all about driving toward a central narrative, which is that America is overwhelmingly bigoted. White Americans in particular are bigoted. The conservative agenda itself is the white agenda, is bigoted, and it's it's largely terroristic. And that's why they can't, when there are conflicting facts in the background of this person who is mentally ill, and let's just also state that from the outset as well, but they don't want to talk about a mental health crisis in this country because it doesn't serve the narrative. All this is about is trying to savage their political opponents and then use it to justify ever greater usurpations of power and assaults on our liberty under the guise of keeping us safe. So on that note, I will turn it back now to Inez to take us home on the Biden administration's gender insanity. Right. So um, Title IX, which most people are familiar with as part of our Civil Rights Act, but it, it governs um, the it governs any educational institution that has received any federal funds. So that is 99% of them, both on the K-12 level and on the higher ed level. Um, and most people think of Title IX as a sports um, sports bill. It is what ultimately uh, sort of forced universities to equalize spending on male and female sports and thereby shutting down like a lot of male sports teams um, because there weren't enough women who wanted to compete. That's sort of all old, old hat at this point. Um, but there are also some enormously important 
um, other elements under Title IX. So uh, the first thing that these regulations will do um, that the Biden administration is teasing, they have leaked to WAPO and to Politico um, the content of their new proposed rule. Um, however, I, I mean, I, maybe I'll save this for the end, but um, I, I think they're kind of playing with us as well. I think they can bat signal to both private and other and public educational institutions without actually dropping the, the, the rank themselves and, and thereby engendering the pushback that it'll it will engender uh, but there are three important elements to the regulation that they're going to drop that will actually transform american law so this will be a not not a law not passed through congress um you know we had all the fights about the equality act for example that was unable to pass congress but through uh this this proposed rule this regulation on title nine they're proposing to essentially enact the equality act with regard to educational institutions so it would not be, just be a choice uh, to have leah thomas um, a, a man swimming with girls, um, it would be a requirement of Title IX because they want to redefine the word sex to include gender identity and therefore any quote unquote discrimination on the basis of gender identity would be a violation of US civil rights law. Okay, so this is with the stroke of a pen accomplishing what the Equality Act wanted to do with regard to educational institutions. It's gonna have, you know, it's gonna have mass consequences, everything from, you know, bathrooms and locker rooms to um, sports teams to any kind of uh, sex segregated space. So for example, um, you might even have problems with sororities and uh, fraternities at this point. Um, to, to have any kind of sex segregated space will be after this, according to the Biden administration, a violation of U.S. civil rights law. Ironically, a civil rights law meant to protect um, women, <laughs> the opportunities of women in higher education and, and to protect them from essentially the level of harassment and discrimination that would make them unable to attend an educational institution. Right. Um, so. Ironically, we're now going to put men <laughs> into women's locker rooms in order to advance under a law that was supposed to advance women's um, women's comfort and rights in um, in educational settings. But there are also two major other implications of this law, um, this this proposed rule, I should say. They're going to be overturning key aspects of uh, a, a promulgated rule under the um, Trump administration with regard to due process and free speech on campus. All right. So the due process piece, we all saw how, you know, the kangaroo court that Kavanaugh went through on the national stage. Well, that's been happening in college campuses to young men uh, for just about a decade now. And the, the Trump administration put in certain very basic due process protections that are in line with what federal courts have required universities to do. Um, those will be overturned. I'm talking real basic, like having an impartial um, an impartial decision maker uh, for these kinds of tribunals, having the right to representation, having the right to actually see what you're accused of. I mean, these are these are really, really basic due process rights. They're all going to be under the chopper in this new proposed rule. And finally, the, the definition of sexual harassment has expanded on college campuses to the point where it has cut deeply into protected speech. So, you know, we've had people, professors in particular, slap with Title IX suits for writing an article for a publishable journal, um, and that is being called harassment. Uh, so it, it, this is really an enormously, like a huge shift in US law. It's being, do, being done by unelected bureaucrats. It's largely not getting any coverage. And again, they, they basically leaked the contents of this to the press in advance um, to try to signal to all these institutions, hey, this is going to be the law. Um, while we actually fight about, you know, when those regs drop, there will be a huge pushback. But I think what they're trying to do is avoid the political pushback, which is why I'm talking about this now, because I think it's 
actually like a huge transformation of US law. Uh, and for some reason, it is not getting coverage even on the right. Uh, Republicans should be campaigning on it. Um, it. It shouldn't just be relegated to conservative media. This should be a, an issue that Republicans are actively campaigning on and talking about and uh, you know, getting Fox News to discuss and uh, owning the narrative on. The Obama administration's kangaroo, kangaroo courts ended with a three-part series by Emily Yaffe in The Atlantic. In The Atlantic, um, examining, what, examining what a disaster they have, had been um, for students, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said they went too far. This is uh, this was widely condemned by a lot of liberal experts, legal experts, um, and so this is three pronged. As Ines said, you have the the kangaroo cat courts are coming back. You have uh, gender identity being decided by unelected federal bureaucrats for every school that gets federal funding on the K through 12 level. These communities are not making that decision themselves. The Biden administration is going to do it through the Department of Education. And three, the definition of sexual assault is going to be expanded um, so that when it is adjudicated in these kangaroo courts, it's all the more um, it, it, it's all the easier for, for women to uh, implicate men in gross criminal behavior or uh, offensive behavior. And it's happening under the noses of the press and under the noses, apparently, of elected Republicans. We knew that the Biden administration was going to do this, um, yet nobody said a word about it on the campaign trail that I'm aware of, amazingly so. And if they said it, they sure as heck didn't say enough about it. They're not talking about it right now. I know Joe Biden's not on the ballot right now, but a whole lot of Democrats who support this nonsense are. It is hugely consequential. It is imminent. And um, it, it's just as though nobody uh, nobody can can be bothered to care. And it's very radical. Yeah, look, I mean, what's going on here? I mean, this is galling stuff. I mean, it's basically social revolution without representation, right? And it kind of brings me back, obviously, to the Bostock decision from June 2020 penned by Justice Neil Gorsuch. And at the time, you know, what's going on there, basically rewriting sex to mean kind of gender, um, uh, uh, gender identity or sexual orientation. At the time, the opinion there purported to cabin its ruling specifically to Title VII. But I think a lot of us in kind of the commentariat space reading this opinion were like, okay, well, you know, it's nice for the court to try to cabin this reasoning to Title VII, but the exact same logic necessarily applies to Title IX and many other parts of, of the civil rights code. And sure enough, after Bostock went down, a lot of lower courts just decided to basically plainly ignore, surprise, surprise, what Gorsuch wrote in Bostock and basically read in SOGI, sexual orientation, gender identity, into Title IX and, uh, and other statutes. The same thing, by the way, happened back um, in Windsor. So you know, before Obergefell, there was Windsor, a 2013 case with respect to the Defense of Marriage Act. And in that case, also a 5-4 opinion, Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the opinion, said over and over again, this is, you know, it's a, it's a state issue. Don't read anything more than we're saying. Surprise, surprise. Again, like the lower court said, oh, because of X, Y, Z reasons, this is a constitutional right. So look, I mean, it's not difficult to see where this ship is heading unless Republicans, you know, man up and actually start to campaign on this issue as they obviously should. And, you know, we've said so many times on this podcast that the imperative is for Republicans to kind of get up there and fight the culture war. But you don't need to hear it from us. I mean, look at literally the, the polling on the issue. I mean, just this morning I was reading 
this Substack or the latest Substack from our friend John Schweppe at American Principles Project. And I, I guess, you know, his outfit, along with his boss, I guess, Terry Schilling, recently did this polling, basically trying to get American senses on a lot of these quote unquote culture war issues with respect to kind of minors getting gender affirming care, parental consent notification. Long story short, you, you know, you can look up the Substack or find the polling online yourselves. But the American public is with us on these issues. They really, really are. I mean, you know, we saw Glenn Youngkin obviously win a gubernatorial race in Virginia last November, campaigning basically as a culture warrior on the critical race theory issue. So there is no reason whatsoever to shy away from these fights. And this is just a galling, eye-gouging stuff. And I hope the Republicans do fight this fight. In some sense, you have to look on with awe at the evil of what's going on here. You have the party of science executing a war on women. At the same time, there's also the assault on justice here. Uh, this is obviously going to poison the well of every university in the country. It's going to divide people. It's going to undermine trust and any sense of community on these campuses as well. And I think you know the, the devious aspect of this in terms of the tactics, I think the Biden administration learned from the threatened vaccine mandates that it does have the effect of working. If you leak it out, you can in effect, first of all, you can do an end run around the law by doing this through the administrative state, but then also the mere threat of handing this down via the administrative state will cause people to move in your direction. Uh, it, this is a tactic that we ought to be looking to counter next time there is a Republican Congress and hopefully a Republican president as well. So the tactical aspect of this is worth keeping in mind. But beyond that, uh, the, the really the writing out of sex from American life and replacing it with what a person feels and believes in their heart uh, is needless to say a more than disturbing development. And it's going to, of course, ruin the law and really in many ways corrupt all of our social institutions, civil society institutions, certainly in this country, again, via the administrative state. Uh, so on that note, uh, let's jump into parting shots with whoever wants to lead us off. Yeah, look, so I mean, I guess I'll lead off by kind of going back to a topic that we've covered at length in the past few episodes, which is this leak of the Dobbs opinion, the abortion case in the Supreme Court. The most recent headlines that I saw today was that DHS, Department of Homeland Security, is now actively preparing for mass violence if the justices go through with this. They are actually preparing for the possibility of physical assaults on the Supreme Court building itself for attempts to injure or, or potentially grievously injure the justices themselves at their homes. I, I, you know, words just cannot possibly uh, rise to the occasion to describe the level of just insanity that DHS has to actually engage in this, where simply for a coordinate branch of government, Article 3, the federal judiciary, just pronouncing the law, what the law actually is, basically going back to Marbury versus Madison, kind of the quintessential job of the judiciary is to say what the law actually is, not what it should be. And, you know, it really does, I think, shine a spotlight on just the truly radical nature of the left, that they are actually resorting to this sort of thing and that the Department of Homeland Security is taking this seriously. So, you know, similar to the last segment when we were saying the Republicans should campaign this fall on this Title IX thing, as they absolutely should, I definitely think that Republicans should also campaign this fall and just trying to shine a spotlight on the fact that the left is, a, a, they are ruling by mobocracy. I mean, that is literally kind of their guiding 
modus operandi right now is to try to get their way through Midas right style intimidation tactics. And, you know, I mean, call me naive, but uh, the same way that like the media in America, I think is on our side on these SOGI transgender related issues. I do think the media in America recognizes that this is harmful, that this is disgusting. And that I, I if there's any issue really to kind of get moderates independence back to your side, it's, to, it's kind of the, the whole suite of the crime and law and order issues. Um, you know, the median American moderate does not want BLM rioters in the street or like, you know, abortionist rioters, you know, trying to gun down jurists or whatever. So I hope Republicans try to shine a spotlight on this in the campaign trail this fall as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the wrap up thought I have is really does tie a lot of these topics together, which is all these institutions can coordinate around the law um, by virtue of mostly holding the same set of of principles, right, or same set of underlying um, ideology points or whatever. Uh, I think Ben, you said it really, really well um, with regard to to the um, the deep state stuff and the investigation, Durham Durham's investigation. But I, I, I like it comes up over and over again, this tactic of being able, like, why did the vaccine uh, mandate, which everyone knew would be struck down, why did that actually, you know, go into effect? Um, it didn't 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 follow the normal procedure of the law, right? Then we then we wouldn't have it implemented, and then we, it would get struck down, and then people wouldn't have to follow it. Instead, it was a bad signal that went out to all of the private corporations to enforce it. Um, the same thing is happening with Title IX. We're already having um, we're already hearing from parents that schools are telling them that these uh, transgender policies are uh, necessary because of Title IX, and the purpose of all of this, even though that's not true right now. Um, the purpose of all of this is to confuse the lines of democratic accountability, to circumvent it whenever possible, and to substitute essentially the points of political you know, ideology held in common by a particular class of people, whether they're working in public or private institutions, to, to essentially replace um, democratic accountability with that set of principles and to cabin democratic accountability. You know, it's funny, the left is always talking about, you know, um, they're always worried, obviously, about expanding the franchise, whether that's um, against, you know, common sense things like voter ID laws, or whether that's um, expanding the franchise to 16 year olds, right, which has also has been a proposal that's been floated by a lot of people on the left. They're all about expanding the franchise. But at the same time, between the courts and the administrative state, they are further and further restricting the issues that the population and the voters are actually allowed to weigh in on. And you're seeing the same thing with the abortion debate, right? All that overturning Roe does is return that issue back to essentially democracy. Um, but what they're trying to do in a thousand different ways is to short circuit those lines of accountability. Um, and, and I really do think they're, they're, if, if we are to save the, the save the country from the track that it's on, um, where Republicans are going to have to actually act in an aggressive way to transform the institutions themselves, both public and private, so that they are in some way responsive to the people. Because what we're, we're seeing now is largely they don't have to be. Um, as I was looking up what things had been said about the demographics as destiny uh, type argument, I uh, stumbled onto a column from Charles Blow that I think was written during the Obama era about how um, this, what, all of the trends show that the United States will be a majority minority country um, in, in the coming years. And we should act uh, with the, the all of the grace we can muster to make this transition 
um, in a way that mitigates racial tensions going forward. Now, this is obviously amusing to see from Charles Blow, even the Charles Blow of years past, but it does, I think, get at something smart and true, which is that um, the country is undergoing really dramatic shifts in a, a very rapid period of time. And uh, racism happens, of course, it is. it, it happens in every society, um, and it, it always will. Um, and, and the best cultures and governments minimize its effects. Um, but the, the happy note here that I, I somehow am ending on uh, amid the sea of uh, tragedy and sadness that we've sort of floated through during this episode is the United States does a, a remarkable job, whether it's race, whether it's uh, you know tolerating and uh, coping with some of these very radical ideas, whether it's religion, um, you know, it, to some extent it feels impossible to balance all of these competing interests. The quaint fights over Satanists and Ten Commandment monuments of of your uh, feel you know so different than what we're going through today. But the United States is handling all of these changes. Um, as, as horrible as it seems to us, and I don't disagree with any of you that I'm, I'm terrified about the trajectory in the state of the country, um, and yet I can't help but marvel at how we have absorbed so many different um, people uh, into this country and functioned peacefully. And what makes uh, me especially sad is that we seem to be throwing all of that away, and it is uh, primarily the people like Charles Blow um, that are making that project in, in feel impossible. Um, we are we are so we have so much reason to be patriotic. We have so much reason to be proud. We have so much reason to uh, feel good about what's what's we're capable of in this Republican system of government. And it is indeed the people like Charles Blow in the New York Times who are um, uh, hurting us in our our. And that's why you see so much shifts among uh, minorities towards the right. So uh, it is just. Very amazing to look at how we are doing as a country, and you know, acknowledge that while we're on the wrong track, um, what we're doing is is basically unprecedented in human history, and um, for that, I'm grateful. So I'll I'll be a little more somber, but I will start by saying we are a great and good people. We just happen to have a terrible class of leaders that, and the chasm between the good and great people and the terrible leaders continues to grow greater and greater. And that's why the trend lines, I think, look so dire. Um, and to that point, you know, Inez talked, I think was briefly referencing earlier, the Federalist Papers talking about ambition, counteracting ambition. And, you know, the founders talked about the fact that in a large republic that they envisioned, you want to maximize the amount of factions that they'd each sort of check and balance each other. That was one of the checks and balances inherent in the system. The problem as I see it today is that there is essentially one faction and we can call it the ruling class or the, the uniparty, whatever adjective you want to slap on it. There's one faction which essentially it doesn't even act in conspiracy ne necessarily. It's almost organic, the moves that are made. And it does cross party lines and it does lead to all of these devastating consequences that we've been discussing. And I focus a lot on the national security apparatus, maybe because it's the most chilling aspect of it and the most disturbing aspect of it to our liberty and justice. And, you know, Josh was talking about no closure on Russiagate. And for me, beyond the closure, it's the aspect of, it's the fact that there's no justice here. 
And there's really no justice in the system when you think about it. When you talk about the Dobbs leak, for example, assuming the leaker was a leftist quirk or the equivalent of it, that essentially was an act of naked intimidation in effect because the, the consequences were predictable in terms of inciting, provoking mob, mob rule over rule of law. That for the left is justice, this threat now under which decisions are to be made and, and arbitrated. Uh, it was the same thing, and I mentioned this in a prior episode, jurors, the threats that they faced or the, the pressures they felt in the Chauvin case. The fact that city, that businesses in cities across the country before election night were boarding up their windows is another signal of fear of mob rule. That is wholly un-American. Uh, it's disastrous. And, it's, and, and what I say on the national security side of it is, if there is no justice, it guarantees infinitely worse to come. And that's how you get from a Russia gate to the FBI and the DHS targeting critical parents as terrorists, as whistleblowers have now shown. So, uh, you know, I don't know what the positive takeaway is from this, except to say that it's become more and more brazen, arrogant in some ways, and open for everyone to see. The public rejects it to the extent they know what's going on. And we just need to keep hammering home what I think really sticks in most of our craws at the end of the day, which is the double standards and the injustice, the two-tier system that we have, which is to say a no-justice system. And rejecting the mob is something that you know should be pretty widely. That should be a more than 80% plus issue in this country. Uh, it's a pretty easy issue to run on, on top of all these other ones that we've spoken of. Let's see if there are actually leaders out there willing to represent the actual constituents of this great and good country, these great and good people. So on that note, on behalf of Josh, Emily, and Inez, I'm Ben Weingarten. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next NatCon Squad.